You are listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Nicole Krauss, the author of the novels Man Walks into a Room and The History of Love. Nicole's short fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Esquire, and Best American Short Stories. And in 2007, Granta named her one of the best young novelists in America. This year, she was named one of The New Yorker's 20 writers under 40 to watch. And Nicole Krauss is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her new book, Great House, one of the five nominees for this year's National Book Award. Welcome to Between the Covers, Nicole. Thank you. So like your previous book, The History of Love, you've taken multiple voices and you've connected them in one way around an object, in this case, a desk. Can you tell us how you came about that choice? I guess I would rather start and say that that's not necessarily the way that I think about the book. It's certainly not the way I conceived of it. And this novel, as I've discovered, is very difficult to describe uh, for those who have read it, but even for the author who's written it. And when we were thinking of how to describe it, in a way, one of the only ways we could do in a few short paragraphs was to say these are stories that are linked by a desk. But the truth is, is that these many different stories, which you have alluded to, the idea for me was to bring them together, but to bring them together through many symmetries and echoes. And if you imagine almost it as architecture through sort of joints, or sometimes I imagine it as a kind of a galaxy of moving parts where what's holding the whole together are these sort of shared emotional or intellectual forces. But I really didn't want to write a book with a center. So when I hear the book inevitably, as you know, because it's hard to describe, described as these voices or these confessions or stories linked by this piece of furniture, something in me always bristles a little bit. Well, it wasn't my experience as a reader that the desk was the central thing holding it together, but it felt like it was one of several things. The thing that struck me as a reader in, in reading Great House that connected the four narrations most strongly was this sense of existential loneliness and isolation and, and the struggle against that. Um, I was wondering if that was something that you also considered a unifying theme in, in Great House, and if you could talk a little bit about it. I suppose that's a unifying theme of all three of my novels, now that I think about it. Um, of course, it's only once you sort of begin to write a certain number of pages, adding all the pages together, that you begin to realize what it is that continues to compel you. And although I think and hope that I'm continually changing as a writer, that each new book is a departure from the last, taking different risks with new ambitions, there is some way in which one also hopes to have concerns that that, that art overarch through through all of the work and, and evolve. And for me, this idea or this feeling for this struggle to in some way overcome solitude or a sense of isolation, that sort of the solipsistic self, is very obviously I'm constantly compelled by it. Um, and it's no surprise, I suppose, that for me that has been something I've dedicated my life to. I mean, writing is that constant labor, that constant effort, not simply only to express yourself, but to express yourself in, in this effort to be fully known, to be fully exposed. And I think in Great House, I remained in the struggle with these characters far longer than I maybe did in other books. In other books, I was 
interested in reaching quickly, hopefully, that moment of transcendence or surpass, surpassing um, f- solitude for real connection. But here I was interested in, st- in staying down in the, in the hole, in the sort of abyss of it. But it's no less, um, for me, the, the hope is, is of, of transcending that is still in this book as powerful, the sense that these people are not content with the situation that want and believe in the possibility of sort of, or at least the chance of being fully known. Well, I, I imagine it's a universal thing that um, people struggle against feeling trapped in their own interiority or their subjective lives and wonder if they can be known, if they can know the people close to them. Um, but I also wondered if maybe that issue was more foregrounded for a writer than the average person. And and the reason I ask that is I noticed that three of the people who are sort of um, trapped in this scenario in Great House are writers um, or aspiring writers who've abandoned it. And I I was curious if that was an intentional thing or something that surprised you, that these characters ended up being writers struggling with this issue. I do think that I continue to write about writing and that literature itself has become something of really a character almost in the works or at least it, it this um, very all of the many abstract things which literature means to us have often been absorbed in my books into an object that, that in the history of love it was this lost book within the book also called the history of love that changed these few lives and connected them and then, then there's this object of the desk at which yes people sort of labor to express themselves but clearly this is a universal thing that that effort to be known and as clearly it, you know it's um highlighted or somehow illuminated in a particular way by the work of the writer and it's and there's inter- also an interesting paradox in the sense that a writer going deeper into their work to f- to create connection with their readers could be sacrificing the connections of the people closest to them in their own lives. And I know that's one of the main themes, and in, in particularly in the first section with Nadia. Nadia, of course, yeah, this American writer who has really sacrificed everything, a family, a husband, a, a social life beyond... Her, her solitude for, in order to sort of dedicate herself to her art. I think what interests me about writing that role, as I almost think of it as a role because it, uh, these are monologues and I feel like I really sort of had to become these people in writing them. But I, the idea of doubt, really, of self-doubt, which she is so plagued by, as are many of the characters, or at least they're, they're, they're plagued by doubt of some form. But for her it comes in the form of here I've made all these sacrifices, but I felt somehow I was chosen for this and that I should and could dedicate myself to it. But what if I was wrong? I mean, what if all this time I was wrong? This is a question that she can't suppress and sort of rises up in her and causes a kind of mental and unra- emotional unraveling. And the role of doubt, um, does that play a role in the process of putting the book together? when you choose uh, a structure that doesn't involve a central protagonist but involves these um, people all living in different parts of the world who, the nar- as the narrative progresses, seems to be their lives seem to be woven together almost like a fabric. 
I think it's become my central, the central sort of aspect of my process, this sense of committing to uncertainty about what I'm writing about. And that is, you know, all throughout the many levels of the novel, where it's going to go, what is it about, who are these characters, how are they going to connect, how are these stories going to come together into a whole. But I do have an overwhelming commitment to the whole, and I know that these stories that are setting out belong together. I'm, it's not simply that they need to cross or connect in time or in the narrative. They need to, in a deep emotional and, and um, thematic way, need to hold together and be much more than what they would be alone. But I, I never know for sure for a very long time in the writing process. I mean, at least, you know, two-thirds of it, really. I never know how it will all play itself out. And I really, it only as I come to the final pages of the book, is there really a kind of clarity or a kind of certainty um, but I and I and I think that that not only did that seep into the characters in this novel, it also became a way for me to think about the reader's experience. That in asking the reader to dwell along with me and through these characters' stories, in uncertainty, I'm asking him or her to think about what it is to make a life there, which it seems to me the only place we're really given to make a life. And it's very interesting counterbalance to this. Um sense with the characters struggling with their connection or lack of connection. And at the same time, as the novel progresses, finding that their lives, are, whether they want them to be or not, are are woven and linked to other characters, giving the reader a sense of um, a wholeness to life and a richness to life, even if each individual character is struggling to find a way to connect into it, subjectively speaking. I think this is one of the things that we look for as readers and one of the pleasures of writing is, you know, you can look at it in many ways. One is the idea of ascribing meaning to life where there may not be meaning and one is to to give a sense of a whole, of a completeness, of a, of a house, let's say, where everything has a room and everything has a place. And, you know, some of those, for example, this, there's a, a stone that goes through the window a window in this novel. And I had that idea from very, very early on, but didn't write it until the final pages. But the idea to me was, here's this stone that's thrown through a window in Budapest in 1944, the window of a family's house, a Jewish family, and the Gestapo are about to arrest this family, and their lives are going to explode forever, will never be the same. So as the stone goes through the window, where does it land? Because that one life, which is it ends and another begins. So that stone, instead of writing that for a long time, that riddle, the stone kept dropping in different places in the book. It goes through different windows, really. And so this idea of, you know, how do, what are the repercussions of historical tragedy or personal trauma? You know, how do they sort of play themselves out? But that stone moving and crashing through windows connects the book, connects these parts in some way that, as a reader, you're aware of. And there are no such stones in life. But, of course, that, that is, that's what we love about art about literature. You're listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host, and today's guest is Nicole Krauss, the author of Great House. Well, let's continue the um, discussion of the house metaphor. You have a character who um, is trying to reassemble a house or a room in a house from, from memory. Um, and I was wondering if that idea was also a process that a writer goes through in assembling a book or whether that is whether that's a, not a true metaphor for you when, when you're putting together uh, a book like Great House. 
As in, do I think of the novel as assembling a kind of room? Like uh, a sense of searching through one's memory, um, like the character who's looking for the pieces to bring back his father's room um, before the Holocaust. Uh, and I was, I was struck by that and the idea of um, the, the great house being both a physical house and being an exploration of one's own mind. Well, I think there is a way in which one has to feel, I have to feel as a writer, or at least I have to trick myself to feel that I am absolutely inventing things, that I am following my intuition towards acts of imagination. Of, and only later do I understand that, in fact, some of those things which seemed like purely imaginative writing or situations or experiences are, in fact, reflections of, often mirror reflections of my own sort of personal experience as in things out of my own memory. Of course one can't write what one hasn't in some way seen, but we see things everywhere. We see them in art and books, and sometimes one is writing about a place one has only visited sort of through books. But I think I'm inter very interested as, in a, as a writer in the idea of memory itself as a creative act. This this was there from my first novel, Man Walks Into a Room, where you have a person who, a man who has lost 24 years of his life, memory of those years, and has only his childhood, and needs to reconstruct or reinvent a coherent self, something that the brain that as, you know we we naturally need, we rely on in order to survive. And I think this has been playing itself out in many different ways through the three novels. The sense of memory as a willful thing an almost fictional creation of the self. You you mention in Great House the um, house of Freud, I believe, in, in England, that is um, now frozen in time as a museum. Um, and I was wondering if there you felt there was a connection between the reassembling of his house there um, after he fled to England and the reassembling of the... Um, the father character's house in in Great House. Yeah, of course, and in, in, I mean that mirror echo is supposed to be a, very apparent to the reader. It was something I thought about a lot in the writing, and in fact, there was another such um, deconstructed and then reassembled room that I had been thinking a lot about that didn't find its way into the novel, which was Francis, the artist, the painter Francis Bacon's studio um, in London, where he painted for thirty years, which was then taken apart piece by piece into tens of thousands of pieces and reassembled down to the exact tiny spatter of paint in Dublin. And from there I found myself thinking of Freud's study, which when he fled Vienna in, in 1938 was entirely taken apart, packed up and reassembled in his house in London where he lived one more year until he died there by his wife and daughter. And then after he died, just like after Bacon died, there was this almost religious preservation of this room down to, you know, where he put the glasses down on his desk before he before he died. And I just became fascinated by the idea of such a room, what what such this, this act of reconstruction meant. And I kind of wanted to create such a room for myself to experiment with. And when I did, it was in this story of this antique stealer, the son of that family in Budapest in 1944, who sort of ceases to exist in that moment who for 50 years tries to reconstruct his father's study from Budapest in this house in Jerusalem, although in that case there's one item missing, which is this desk. And so long as there's one item missing, it can never 
be the exact study. It can only be this sort of poor replica. Well, now that we're back to the desk, um, I know you bristle at the idea of it as a central metaphor, but you do talk about, when talking about Great House, the idea of inheritance and, and the burdens that are entailed with inheriting something. Can you talk more about how that informed this book and also the idea of, of receiving this desk? Mm-hmm. Well, I had written this short story. I thought it was a short story. That's what I published it as. Um, I thought it was finished. It was called From the Desk of Daniel Varsky. And later it was included in, in an anthology. And I was asked to write a short description of the inspiration for this desk. So I sat down at my own desk in my house where I worked and it dawned on me then, this sounds silly to tell a story because it seems like how could I not have known, but really only dawned on me then, um, these are the kind of blinders we put on ourselves in order to feel that we're imagining, only to be reminded that, no, in fact, this comes from reality, from our lives. That desk in the story, which is this enormous thing, inherited, in that case, by Nadia, this American writer from a young Chilean poet, who later dies, um, that desk was almost exactly like the desk that I write at. It doesn't. Mine doesn't have 19 drawers like the one in the story and in the novel, but it's enormous, and I also invent, uh, inherited it. I was about to say invented it. I invented it and inherited it <laughs> um, from the former owner of my house. And as I was writing about this, I thought, you know, it's. Oh, I've always hated this desk. I've never liked it. It's so... It dominates the whole room, and it's kind of this overbearing thing. And I haven't gotten rid of it because it's you would have to chop it up to get it down the many stairs in my house. It was built into the room. And as I started to think about what this desk is to me, I realized that I f- somehow feel this responsibility to keep writing it. I can't explain it. It's this burden, but I feel responsible to it. And the more I thought about that idea, the more I thought about how this was connected to my own life. Well, I had just become a new parent for the first time. And one of the things I found myself endlessly thinking about, about myself as a mother or about my child, was what is it that we pass down to our children? What's passed down to us from our parents? What do we pass down to our own children without really fully knowing? I mean, I'm talking about emotional things now. So when I thought of that phrase, the burden of inheritance, it didn't have anything to do with material inheritance, although it was this desk which sort of gave me the form for the idea. But the idea has to do with things that are much more abstract. I mean, sadnesses, angles at which we face the world. What What is it that we pass down to our children? And, and speaking of inheritance in, in um, a larger sense, are there certain writers in the literary family tree that either you aspire to or um, find inspiration in, in, in terms of um, the type of literature you want to create? The writers that I really love and who continue to live with me and that I go back to their books continually through the years, I find tend to be writers who in some way or another remind me um, that anything is possible in the novel, um, that there are no rules, if there are rules that are um, suggested that those should immediately really be broken, that it's up to the writer to reinvent the form every time she sits down to write a novel because it's such a poorly defined form. It's very murky, but it's also really quite infinitely flexible. And this sense of a writer like um, 
the Israeli writer David Grossman. I'm thinking now of See Under Love, uh, a book of his from quite some years ago, or a writer even like Thomas Bernhard, who simply doesn't do what other writers do. Nobody did what what he does before him, and, and nobody has since or or um the writer Roberto Bolaño which has become who has become so beloved in the last few years to so many um but these are all writers oh, Beckett as another Beckett may be my favorite writer of all time these are all writers who um broke open what 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 a novel should be do you f- feel like you're writing um in a Jewish tradition i know that you mentioned david grossman but the the novel also has a a uh, feels like it brings up a lot of themes that are uh, common themes for uh, Jewish American writers and Israeli writers, and, and the novel does take place in Israel as well as under the shadow of the Holocaust and other places. And I was curious if you put yourself in that tradition, in the way you view your own your own writing. Um, sometimes when that question's asked, it's asked in the way of, "Do you consider yourself?" a Jewish writer, and then I always think, but I don't, I really don't consider myself. I mean, I, it's this sense of one doesn't have a, a look at oneself from an aerial perspective. I think of myself as a writer who hopefully is writing about very universal things that, that cross um, cultural sort of boundaries. But obviously one writes about what one inherits, really, emotionally and and culturally. And, you know, there are sort of deeply, I suppose, Jewish elements to to my writing. In this book, for example, the, this idea that we touched on, the idea of doubt, is, you know, Judaism is unusual as a religion in, in, in how much it values doubt, really, which is a kind of strange thing when you think about it. I mean, it, you know, argument, dissent, questioning, these are fundamental these are critical to Jewish thought. In, in um, Talmudic rabbinical traditions, if an argument that was discussed and argued among the rabbis was ultimately refuted, finally, and, and you know, sort of put to rest, it was considered a failure on the part of the rabbis. The idea is to always keep the argument aloft. The point is the questioning. The point is the doubt, the uncertainty, the arguing, and that to me is an incredibly rich tradition and one that I feel very at home with in a way that I don't feel at home with religion in the traditional sense where what we're talking about is you know belief in God. What's interesting also I think in in Hebrew interpretation the um, most literal form of interpretation is considered the lowest form and so the idea that there are multiple layers similar to your book that has all of these narratives that are layered on top of each other and interwoven amongst each other. It's very interesting. I love to think that. That's nice. And um, also the idea of the Great House goes back to a, um, a, a Jewish school that you reference in, in the book. Could you could you talk briefly sure. about that? Sure, yes. Um, this was a story that I came across. I had known the story and th- many years ago and hadn't thought about it writing this book, and then I came across it again before I had a title for, for the novel. And I had been aware that there are many houses and about this, this metaphor of the house as the mind, and there are these, all these rooms, and, and yet I hadn't thought of the title, a title with house in it yet. And the story is that um, there was 
a great Jewish sage called Ben Zakkai, who lived in Jerusalem in the first century AD when the Romans besieged it. And he had this school called Great House. Um, and he managed to get out of that um, city through a very tricky way. And he was allowed to go to Yavne, which is a small nothing place, and start a new school. And w- it was there in Yavne that he heard the news that Jerusalem had finally fallen and the temple had been burned. So he was faced with this enormous question of what is a Jew without Jerusalem? Because until that time, the whole notion of Judaism depended on this external place. It was a national idea, and it depended on the temple. All the practices did. So he had to, I mean, there's this, again this question of sort of like radical reinvention of a self, or in this case of a people, because he the idea became, well, let's replace sacrifice of the temple with prayer, which is portable, and we'll take something that was external and we'll bring it within, we'll make it internal so that it can survive the diaspora, so that it can go anywhere. Um, So this sort of moment in Jewish history is, to me, one of the most beautiful moments. It's also the moment we have to thank for the survival of Judaism. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Nicole. Thank you so much. We were talking today with Nicole Krauss, the author of Great House. You've been listening to Between the Covers, and I'm David Naiman, your host.